guys. And we're out to the sword. Alright folks, men, women, children, dogs, birds, feathers, sand, dust, blowing around in the wind, uh, we welcome y'all back to another episode of hopefully your favorite entertainment pop culture podcast there is on the planet of earth, you know what I mean? Um... We hope all's well. We're coming to you with a nice, cool episode today with a nice, great guest. The great Tom E. McLaughlin is up in here. Yep, Tommy McLaughlin is up in the building, and uh, he's going to kill it. For anybody out there that might not know him from name, we got Friday the 13th Part 6, quite possibly the the best Friday the 13th movie ever made, uh, outside of maybe that Numero Uno gives it the run for the money. But I think the fact that the first one's the first one is what sells it. Um, part six is great for multiple reasons. Soundtrack is phenomenal. Brutal kills. You know, kids are kind of intertwined into this one a little bit, which makes it a little more creepier. You know, there's moments where you'll see Jason near the kids, and for he doesn't kill any kids, but for you get the vibe that uh, it wouldn't be no thang. It wouldn't be no thang to kill a kid for him. You know what I mean? Uh, which is a uh, problem problematic. Uh, sometimes they come back, Stephen King vehicle, um, good times, I got that DVD, made for TV, but uh, still pretty epic, you know, this gentleman made movies that were very, they, they, they um, emotional, psychological, a lot of psychological dark thriller horror elements to it, you know what I mean, The Unsaid, big times, big time films, and then Date with an Angel, um, which Alexander Hawk loves a lot, but I... I got bad feelings with it because it reminds me of the date with an angel that I had that worked on the film Phoebe Cades when we used to date <laughs> And then we had an issue and uh, Kevin Klein came into the picture and was just too much trouble. And uh, long story short, uh, when the smoke cleared, Phoebe Cates was no longer on my arm. Let's just say that it was a very sad day. I don't want to. It go was a sad it. day. I had to comfort him. It was. It was. Oh, it was sad. It was many years of therapy, many yeah. wet shoulders with him weeping into my my arms. Yeah, I really don't want to talk about it. It's kind of a touchy situation. Uh, I'm gonna try and get through it, get into my peace zone, and. Uh, Figure it out, you know what I mean? We're big wigs. We just got off the blower with uh, Richard Stanley, our boy. How you like them apples? Two for header day. He'll be appearing on the Horrorween, um, which you can probably go listen to right now. If When you're hearing this, you'll be able to go listen to the Horrorween special of 2021 um, and probably prepare yourself for 2022. Um, but... Yeah, we just Richard Stanley earlier today talked to him. He wants to tell, every, tell everybody uh, that he said hello, and he wishes them happy Halloweens this year and last year. So that's a beautiful thing. And uh, without any further ado, we'll kick it in with our guest because there's a lot to talk about. So, audience of the Boombastic cast, please do yourselves a favor. Stand to your feet for just a few moments and welcome the great, Tommy McLaughlin to the Boombastic Cast. Hello. 
Hey, Tommy. Hey, how you doing? Good, man. How are you, Matthew? Not too bad, not too bad. Let me get my camera on there. Live! Live! How's it go? Good to see you. Good to see you, too. I'm not just as shaggy as always. <laughs> I love it. Hiding from the pandemic. Well, that's what it is. The pandemic and everybody's shaggy. Yeah. I say, you know, I have Alexander over here to my, my, my right. I don't know where he is on your screen. Yeah, yeah, you're 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 just just below me, but still above me. Uh, hey, I like that. We got spiritual too. <laughs> so, where are you guys? What part of the world? We're uh, uh, Massachusetts. I'm more south, and he's more north. Yeah, we got both. We got both sides of Massachusetts covered. We got it covered. Yeah, man, I was I was just there last last weekend. Yeah, in Salem. Yeah, you were there for the film festival thing. No, I saw it, and boy, okay. me and my girlfriend were so tempted to go in there, especially to go see the Spanish version of Dracula, which I yeah. never saw on a big screen, yeah. but we had never been to Salem before, and I have this project that I want to do about the about the city and, you know, over the decades, but not exclusively about just witchcraft, you know, about all the other things that I've you know, have kind of learned that are going on, the, the political things about trying to get the witches out, trying to change the reputation as they have for years. And then, you know, the real deal in there as well, that you know, kind of weaves through all the people running around in the little black hats like mouse ears at Disneyland, which I thought was very funny. You know, yeah. Gotten so, so commercialized. Oh, for sure. Amazing. There's uh, there's like urban legend around here that Salem isn't even really the town that happened and it just got like a bad rap. Like it was um, a town near them is where they hung all the way or burned all the witches and hung them up um, because you you feel that would bring some serious negative energy to whatever wherever that happened. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean the one thing I found out that was really fascinating is you know the place they say it all happened Gallows Hill and they and then they know where that is. Actually, and I think it was 2016, they found out it wasn't there. It actually is at this other location, um, and I'm blanking on the name of it at the moment. I'll, I'll think of it. But, you know, they created like a park there, and the guy that was sort of doing the Salem, you know, ghost walk, vampire walk, whatever, you know, he, you know, he was wonderfully dramatic saying, whatever you do, I'm going to tell you the name of this, but whatever you do, go there during the day. Don't go at night. You know, and of course, you know, I was like <laughs> ready to get in the car then and yeah, go. Yeah. Um, but I, I, I couldn't find it. And uh, then it was literally last Sunday, you know, that we finally figured out, you know, where it was, but then had to come back because I, I teach a film class. And, you know, I, unfortunately, I can't be off chasing vampires and ghosts and uh, <laughs> not, not do what I'm getting paid to do. Yeah. Yeah, we got. If you're ever down in the Mass area again, let us know. We got a place called the Bridgewater Triangle, which is kind of like uh-huh. one of our big hotspots, and it's it's uh, this big triangle that stretches multiple towns, and all bad news happens within type deal. It's fun. Wow, yeah. we're doing yeah, all, all that stuff is so fascinating to me because you know the first time I sort of had that uh, paranormal experience when I was 16 at my girlfriend's house. It it's never stopped being an obsession, you know, of mine. And, uh, you know, there's just been so many, so many times there's things that happen and you go, you know what, there's no way, way to logically explain this, but yeah. you know, it exists. And, you know, in the same way, you know, you show, you know, this to somebody 20 years ago 
and you and it's like what the fuck wait a minute yeah. that doesn't make any sense man that you know and i mean this is far greater than this so yeah. i mean in time we will get this shit down but it's got to be something you can prove three times in a row for it to be a science so we're still a little ways away from you know figuring out what the formula is yeah you had a you had an encounter with it with a of the ghostly kind well i there was um there was some sort of spiritual thing some sort of entity thing that was in uh my girlfriend's house with her uh, her mother and her kid her other brothers and sisters and they were part of the parents were part of this sort of occult belief group um sort of you know because this is like mid 60s so it's sort of like pre new age mm. and uh one of the kids had brought home a Ouija board from somebody else and they were playing around with it and you know like most people it's like yeah, it's Parker brothers toy it's you know, you know you know if you don't believe in it what's the big deal well apparently <laughs> playing around with it created some sort of entity that was literally following my girlfriend around who was very susceptible to all that kind of stuff and you know i was this you know 16 year old rock and roller you know stoner you know it's like yeah right 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 kind of guy <laughs> and one night when they had their meeting um we decided that we were going to you know go to the meeting and part of the the ritual that night was to take the Ouija board and to burn it in the um in the fireplace so they lit up this roaring fire with the logs and stuff and they put the Ouija board in there and then everybody just sat there and waited and it seemed again i was 16 rem- trying to remember all this but it seemed like forever before that thing you know started to burn and then it burned in like areas like you know like one spot and another spot and another spot and each was like a perfect circle with like an orange flame a red flame a blue flame a purple flame and they like made this sh- like shrieking sound like a I don't remember the old piccolo peep, you know, fireworks. Yeah, yeah. But these these high pitch wails and I mean it was like you were frozen. I just watching this thing do this, you know, like mini fireworks show and then the thing just like, you know, completely was engulfed in flames and disappeared. I don't know if anybody talked for a minute, you know, after seeing that. It was just so weird. Then I go home that night feeling like I'm being followed and I kept thinking this is my imagination this is my imagination I'm just like you know I I just taking this way too seriously and then sure as shit in the middle of the night I woke up you know like three in the morning or something and the room was freezing cold there was something in the corner that looked like the shape of a man like a head shoulders and then straight down it was kind of like that you know video digital noise kind yeah. of thing that you see and i was terrified and literally called my girlfriend and she, you know she said oh you better talk to my mom and the mother gets on the phone and immediately she, she goes there's something there isn't there and i went yeah yeah what do i do close your eyes i'm not going to close my eyes close your eyes you know and she talked me through this whole ritual of keeping my eyes closed filling the room full of white light and literally i could feel things warm up as you know as as the thing i guess was going away and when i finally opened my eyes it was gone and she goes okay you're going to be fine and hung up yeah needless to say that stuck with me um 
somebody interviewed me years ago. It's actually on YouTube, this whole story with visuals that this filmmaker put to it. But that was like the first time something that, you know, it's like I, I called her that next day and I go, did I imagine this happening? It's like, no, no, you called this happening. And then on and off through the years in New Orleans, um, up in Canada, different places, different houses, different little phenomena, you know, would make itself sort of shown to me, but nothing that I could get to happen on a regular basis. So, you know, all my life, and I, and I got my kids too to go ghost hunting with me. And every time I go into a town, always find out where the ghost walks are, you know, where, where the murders happen, all that stuff. So it, yeah. it's been a real fascination. It's funny that you brought up the Ouija board thing because my uncle has a story from when he was a teenager and him and his girlfriend, they did the same thing. They were really, they were religious. So like they, they were, they were playing with the Ouija board and he said that it started to give them answers and started creeping them out. So what they did, they took the Ouija board, they put it in the fireplace and they lit it on fire and he swears it did not burn. And he says that it started making a hissing sound. And I got it. It lines Mm -hmm. up perfectly with what you're saying. Yeah. Wow. That's the first time I've heard somebody actually have that same sort of story. I've had plenty of people go, nope, I I can understand that. But I've never had somebody say they had a similar story. So it's a real happening. It's a real thing. Yeah. It's crazy. You can go to Walmart in the kids section buy a Ouija board too. You know what I mean? I, I know it's um, I, it's funny. I just did a, a photo shoot with uh, Darcy DeMoss, you know, who was Nikki from the, my movie. And one of the things she pulled out for the photo shoot was a, was a Ouija board. And I mean, I just had like a knee yeah. jerk reaction to it. And she goes, "Come on, come on!" And I go, you know. And of course, you know, being the big brave horror director, it's like, okay, you know. So we worked out a little bit, you know, to do with the thing and um, with me making it look like the, suddenly the, the plaque like spun off out of our hands and yeah. things. And then we turn around and Jason's standing there. We've got a guy doing Jason. So, I mean, I thought, all right, well, that's the first time I've actually put my hands on one of them. You know, yeah. for a joke. <laughs> it's funny. I like how you got, I got that vibe from him too. You know, I, I think he was a very rock and roll gentleman. You know what I mean? Uh, so you, yeah. you, you, you might understand this one a little bit. When I, when we were teenagers, I told this story recently to somebody else. When we were teenagers, we had a sleepover. A friend of mine had a uh-huh. birthday sleepover. And to keep with the rock and roll thing, you know, how you know, the pentagrams and the devil and all that. And I remember, like, I kind of grew up in a religious home, so the devil always kind of worried me. You know what I mean? It scared me a little bit. <laughs> And uh, I remember they were all, like, drawing pentagrams on their body and stuff because they thought it was cool, rock and roll. And I was like, I remember at that age just being like, huh, what? Like, horrified. Like, no, no way. Yeah. Another thing, yeah, yeah, like the Ouija board a little bit. You know, we don't want to throw any, any dish, any dirt on rock and roll, baby. But, yeah, sometimes the imagery in rock and roll is a little misleading, like a Ouija board. Yeah, yeah. And, I mean, obviously I've grown up in and around it but it's like i never it's an area you know that that whole uh heavy you know hard hard metal demonic rock that you know it's never been one of my favorite kind of musics yeah but oh you know i get it and and certainly i know that there's you know people been enormously successful at it and then there's the other people that go no they sold their soul when they did that kind of thing and I, you know, you know, there's all kinds of things about, you know, shit Ozzy did or shit that Alice did in his early career. And then Alice went totally Christian. 
Yes. You know, he's still doing the same act, but, you know, he, he keeps the cross there in front of him. Um, and I went to go visit, you know, I was supposed to do the prequel to The Exorcist. Um, and I was on the, you know, the prep of that movie for two years at Warner Brothers. And one of the things I really wanted to do was to meet William Peter Blatty and talk about, you know, what we were going to do. And they said, you know, Blatty's not going to meet with you. I said, why? And he goes, because he hates the whole fact that anybody's doing any kind of prequel or, or, or you know, sequel. And he, you know, he, he doesn't want to hear about it. He'll take the money, but he doesn't. And I finally convinced them to, you know, talk to him and let me go up to his, to his house up in Mendocino. And the amazing thing is that, you know, when we were walking out of the, out of his house to go to lunch, he says, you know, come over here and look. And he, and I said, what? And he said, do you notice my house? I said, yeah. He says, it's in the shape of a cross, you know? So from above, if you look down on his house, you see a perfect, you know, like wow. Christian cross. And I said, what are you, you know, just protecting yourself? And he goes, yeah, I, you know, I'm going to hedge any bets. You know, who knows? But he was absolutely fascinating. And, you know, having grown up, um, you know, in and around the Catholic and the, and the, you know, uh, Jesuit, you know, a lot of that stuff was very real to him. But the, the, the best prize is he, he gave me a cassette of an actual exorcism from Italy. Uh, of course, I, you know, I don't know Italian, so I don't know what's being said, but every so often you hear that, you know, and he said, yeah, that was the sound that, uh, Billy used for the demon, you know, in, in the movie. And, and it was chilling, you know, <laughs> it was. You know, they say that movie has a curse to it, and that would kind of make sense, stuff like that. You know what I mean? Tied to it. Yeah. Well, I, I have, you know, my walls lined with books about demonology and exorcisms and priesthood and Satanism and all this stuff. And I got to say, that period was a very sort of dark psychological time for me. And yeah. when the script finally came in and I turned it down because I... I promised Friedkin, I said, you know, if I don't think this thing, I said, nothing's ever going to touch The Exorcist. And of course, the second one was horrible. But if I can't come even somewhat close to yours, you know, the, the, the third one, you know, based, based on your book, I, I'll, I'm going to turn it down. My hand to God, I will not do this. And he goes, okay, because if you do and I don't like it, I'm going on every talk show. I'll trash it. I'll trash you. I said, don't worry. And of course, when the script came in, it was just way too talky. It didn't, wasn't at all what, you know, we had spoken about. So I walked away. John Frankenheimer came in, took over, was on it for a year, died. Then, (laughs) um, and like, again, sort of mysterious, you know, he went into Cedar sinai for uh, a check on something and something messed up and he had a heart attack in the operating room and and passed on. Um, And then... um, uh, um, shit. Uh, Paul Schrader then, you know, took on the piece. He directed the script as written, the one I turned down. He turned in his director's cut. He was fired. It's like, this This is no good. It's like, this was the script. No. Yeah. Yeah. Then they hired Rennie Harlan. <laughs> he came in, shot the whole movie all over again. So now they have, you know, two exorcists and, you know, neither of them worked. So, <laughs> You know, and I had to sign a gaggle order saying that, you know, I had nothing to do with any of it over the two years. And I was fine about that because it, it just, you know, was not what it could have been. Yeah. You know, I, I saw it as a, obviously a possible career killer if I didn't do it right. But, 
you know, something that had that flavor of like the Godfather, because it was in the 40s and it was Father Marion's first encounter, you know, with the demon that almost killed him. And we did casting. We found this brilliant little black boy that was, you know, going to be playing, you know, the, you know, he was all twisted and, uh, you know, his body, you know, he came out deformed because he was born to a, you know, the, uh, the village whore. Uh, but then once the demon got into him, he just became like a perfect, you know, child, beautiful and spoke like Hannibal Lecter, you know, yeah. in terms of how intelligent he was. And the writer just got very hung up on the intellectual between Marin and, you know, the, the demon and yeah. as opposed to allowing other things visually to happen. But, you know, it didn't want pea soup, didn't want any of the, you know, the stuff that had been made fun of for so many years. You know, you had to come do fresh territory, you know, with it, yeah. which they didn't end up doing. I've always been curious for those films that get made and just disappear. Like you were talking about Paul's version, like it, it got finished and just got put on a shelf somewhere. Mm-hmm. Really? Uh, that's, that's crazy. Well, I take that back. I think, I think I remember hearing they, they ran it at a film festival hmm. someplace and it actually got a good response um, because it was, wasn't what they thought it was going to be based on, you know, um, yeah. You know, the rumors about it, that it was, you know, very kind of tame and intellectual. Um, so I don't know if they ever actually released that version or not, but I know, I know it did get finished enough that they could play it somewhere. You know, it's, come to think of it, but I've not seen either of them, you know, so I don't you know. Yeah. I just heard, <laughs> I thought I, I'm not going to go in there. It's always crazy. Movies like that big can just kind of get tucked away, you know what I mean? Yeah. Lost, if you will. Yeah, well, now Jason Blum is, you know, out there pounding his chest about, I'm going to make the scariest one yet. And we got Ellen Burstyn, and I don't know, good luck, brother. I mean, you know, all of us who are big fans are certainly going to go in there very skeptical, but yeah. who knows what these guys come up with. I and mean, I'll, I'll, I'll be happy if they do. I mean, I always want to see these anything succeed because it's so hard to make a movie, you know, and have it work. Yeah. They're like boxers. They, they they go to the podium. They speak their big game about how great it's going to be. And then they yeah. show up and give it what they can and just hope for the best. You know what I mean? Exactly. exactly. Yeah. So yeah. How, how did your love for cinema come about? Very interesting. I inherited my father's dream. Um, my dad was a magician and a fire eater, like in vaudeville. He went into the war, World War II, um, while he was over there, when the troops invaded uh, or came in and took over France from the, from the Germans, there was just shit all over the streets, you know, all the stuff that the Nazis had thrown out of windows and shit. And he saw reels of film, which fascinated him, 16 millimeter reels of film. So he's going down the street, winding all this stuff up. And there was actually an old German projector there. And the soldiers were allowed to take anything they wanted, just, you know, ship it back. And so he got all these, these like silent movies basically with German subtitles and the bulk of them were Charlie Chaplin films. So I grew up on Saturday, on Sunday nights with the sheet on the wall and him showing these Chaplin movies. He also, after the war on a GI grant came to LA to go to USC film school because he, you know, you know, it wasn't going to cost anything and he was fascinated with film. So he graduated in 1949, 
Well, nobody wanted to hire some guy out of film school in the 40s. It was like absurd. You know, you, you got in because you knew somebody or it was your uncle or whatever. So he bought a, you know, he took a part-time job, which became a permanent job at a paint store, met my mother, she got pregnant with me. He bought a little house in Culver City right next to the MGM studios. So I grew up with this, his film equipment and his, you know, love of, of movies. And I had the good fortune that the old backlots of MGM were right there, pretty much in my backyard. So on the weekends, me and my friends would go under the fence with the cameras and shoot on these incredible sets. We didn't know what the fuck we were doing. You know, the movies were terrible and stupid, but they were all like horror. Or I think, you know, at one point I did a kind of a James Bond movie and things, but it was just this excitement, you know, to make something um, like that. So, you know, I, I'd show him the, the films and he would like give me notes. So it really was like, you know, something that was so much a part of the, my desire as a child to, to do something like dad wanted, wanted to do. Of course, then the Beatles hit. Everything changed. I went into rock and roll. He didn't want to talk to me. I got kicked out of seven high schools in Los Angeles because my hair just touched my ears. This is all it took, you know, and it was like, no, fuck it. Rock and roll, man. This is what we're doing. And, you know, we opened for the doors and Iron Butterfly and Pink Floyd, all these groups. And we were 15, 16 year old kids. Um, and the, the, the movie thing just sort of disappeared. And then to be a more unique lead singer, I went to Paris at 19 to study with Marcel Marceau to be more physical. That led me back in the movies because I, I was uh, living right across the street from a cinematech that changed movies three times a day. So if I wasn't in learning how to pantomime and, and do acrobatics and all that shit, I was in watching movies. So the two things kind of merged. You know, I wanted to make visual cinema like I saw as a kid as Charlie Chaplin and, and, and at the same time, try to see if I could do like somehow features that somehow it was, re you know, it really revolved around, you know, music and, and visual. And yeah. that kind of was, you know, what I, you know, pursued for, for years, um, until finally, you know, I obviously got a break with One Dark Night, which is, uh, you know, very, very, very visual. And in fact, so much so that <laughs> when we finished the movie, it had to show in the Bahamas three days later to qualify for these guys tax shelter. That was just the only way, you know, we could make it for $800,000. Um, and it's like, there was so little sound in it because so many of the sequences with going down through the mausoleum and stuff, you know, were all silent. So it made me realize, boy, I really did <laughs> go in here with very little dialogue and, you know, a lot, a lot of action. So, and of course that led to Friday the 13th, um, like four years later, but uh, yeah, that kind of was the path from, from dad to screen. There's a lot of uh, comparisons, I feel, between being a magician and being a filmmaker. You know what I mean? Absolutely. A lot of, like, behind the curtain, you know, make this, make yeah. faking it, you know what I mean? Like like I said, we do film, and I, I tell you, as, like, a director, when you can really fake something uh, yeah. and make an audience really believe that it's not, it's quite a feel, you know what I mean? Even the simple things, like, we did it with the last short we did, you know, just the old simple car tricks of like doing a car driving, but just like, you know, setting up the shot and then moving the car and having a light yeah. that goes over it, like and really faking it. I always think that's the most fun stuff to actually shoot. You know what I mean? 
You're absolutely right, Matthew, because, you know, and now that I'm teaching film, which I didn't want to do, I never saw myself as any sort of teaching professor. As far as that goes, I mean, I didn't even make it through fucking high school. And then they're sitting there going, oh, Professor McLaughlin. It's like, <laughs> me? Oh, uh, you know. But all of us that are there, John Batham and all these, you know, incredible sound and editors and stuff that, you know, are hired at uh, Chapman University, you know, we're all people that did it or are still doing it. I, you know, I'm, I'm still pursuing my career in, in both in rock and roll and in film. But I found that, you know, you're talking to these kids right out of high school into college. A lot of them don't really know what they want to do, but they really love movies. And it's really teaching them. And I use that exact term. You know, I, I say, you know, we're illusionists. We, you know, what you do in magic is that you, you know, misdirect the eye and you put the movie together in the audience's head. You know, you cut to this, you cut to that, and suddenly they create a reality that's not really there. It's it's totally a magic trick. And, you know, you have to kind of think it that way. So don't get all hung up on, oh, shit, you know, I want to do this thing and it's supposed to take place in this, you know, palace or whatever. I mean, of course, now you have green screen and other things, but... You know, you go online, you get an establishment shot of a fucking, you know, palace, you know, yeah. you, you, you know, you come in closer on it and then you find someplace somewhere. I don't care if it's a holiday inn that has brick or something on the walls and you create that and people will go, oh, wow, you know, I didn't, they're not going to think about how you did it. They're just going to accept that for what it is. It, yeah. It's tricks, you know, and uh, you realize that, you know, after 42 feature films, I, you know, I've done a lot of magic tricks yeah. <laughs> and trying to convince people that we're in different parts of the world or that this person is this way or that way. And of course, for actors, it, it really is about creating something that is not them, you know, something that's believable to an audience and that they've really committed to as a character. Yeah, Alex is an actor over here. Yeah. Yeah, I got to say, I mean, it's, I mean, one of the things I love about acting, I mean, I've I've done everything behind the camera and also in front. And just, I think the main thing for me is uh, the, just the idea of storytelling. I love stories. I love trying to create a person and a character that no matter how, I guess I've done like uh, over the top comedies and I've done, you know, drama, I've done horror, but I'm the only thing I really try to do with every character is make the character real, feel real enough that you can think, Oh, I can walk down the street and no matter how funny or crazy he seems to be that you feel like you could actually, you know, meet him and, and shake his hand. I mean, that's, yeah. that's what I always try to do as an actor to try to give no matter how crazy the character is, a sense of realism that you can be like, yeah, yeah. That that's like the guy that, you know, I pump gas for on, on the weekends or something, you know, it's like, yeah, just, just trying to bring in the realism because no matter how outlandish or crazy the story is, whether it's, you know, fantasy, sci-fi, if you can make them believe in the character you're already halfway there. Yeah. And, and there's a, the other thing too, Alex, is which I always share with these, you know, both film students. And of course, you know, when I'm working with actors is that there's got to be some element that you kind of love this character for all its faults. 
And maybe there's some secrets that they have that it's not in the script or anything else. It's just stuff that they have that makes them different from themselves. But they, but you as an actor understand kind of what that would be like if you did have that. I mean, if you killed somebody, if you were cheating on your wife, if whatever, there's a, that side that you know you're not perfect. And, but you're, it's not just about the words on the page. You know, there's a, there's an inner life there. And it's hard for a lot of these kids because they're writing it. I mean, I've got literally a stack of 40 scripts over there. I'm overseeing 40 student films that started, you know, a, a month ago and have to be finished by the top of December. And that's from concept to finished product, you know, that can be screened. And to try to, you know, spin 40 plates with these guys and try to get them to focus on what's important and the casting, all that stuff. I mean, it's, it's maddening. Um, and meanwhile, you know, I'm going out of town. <laughs> I go to Salem this week, this past weekend. Thursday, I go to Manchester, England for the, you know, the love of horror. You know, I come back, then I'm going to Chiller in New Jersey. Then I'm going to Germany the next weekend, you know, for these. So it's like, I don't have the weekends to think about it. I just get back, have to take on all this stuff and try to do with phone calls and things, you know, get them on board because it is overwhelming when you really think about how many things it takes to go into, you know, making a movie and how many people, you know, you, you need to recruit. Yeah. Oh, for sure. It yeah. Was, I mean, huh, yeah. Recruit, recruiting people is a tough time, especially nowadays with, with the COVID pandemic. Yeah. Yeah. We got to hear all those rules too. And that's, that's really difficult. So some people are scared shitless other people, it's like, you know, like with me, I had it. I went through it. Hey, ain't that bad. Got the shots. Wear the mask. You know, be as careful as I can. Um, but there's other folks that are just so terrified. They're still living in their houses, you know, not wanting to go out, having food brought in. It's, you know, like my band, you know, because <laughs> we're all the same age. I still am fucking 18 in my head. Yeah. They are in their 70s. You know, and, you know, so I don't want to die. And I go, hey, you ain't got no control over it anyway. And I had it and I was far from death, you know, so it's up to you guys. But it frustrates me because we haven't played in like a year and a half. Yeah. There's a point when it starts to become like an excuse more than an actual inconvenience. You know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And people get, not all people, but certain get very, very, um, comfortable in not having to do anything yeah and it's like an addiction you know oh for sure i mean time off is definitely addiction it feels good you know what i mean yeah make everybody take a break for two years and uh Mostly, you know, I'm, I'm waiting for i'm waiting for the time for i can actually have uh time off i mean i've been working all through this um uh, i was one of those uh deemed the essential employees so there was <laughs> there was no time wow. off for me. I'm I'm yeah. still going, burning the candle at both ends. So the show had to go on, Hawkman. Yeah. We got to bring our show to people. <laughs> yeah. What What do you do, Alex? Um, I work at uh, pharmacy uh, back home. Wow. Yeah. I mean, right now I'm looking to like uh, change. I mean, it's new new uh new policies that corporate is pushing through and we have a new boss that is making it less about the customer service and more about just you know the profit margin i mean the profit margin's always been there but it's 
now gotten to a point where it, it really starts to affect the store and the employees even more. The morale, yeah. Yeah, yeah so, yeah. I mean, morale's right now in the toilet. So, I mean, I'm looking to try to find something else, anything else at this point. Uh, Where, where's your passion? Is well, acting? I, yeah, my passion is filmmaking, is acting. Yeah. But, I mean, at this point, uh, it's more money going out than coming in. So, yeah. I mean, the only reason I, I – because the job I have now, I had when I was 16. So I've I've held the same job mainly to, you know, just make enough money to, you know, just throw into my passion. But, yeah. but you know, I mean, like I said, I mean, right now I'm looking for something that hopefully will pay more and uh, – at least, I mean, I'm. I have no problem with hard work. I have a problem when, oh, you know, <laughs> when when you put in put in the work and 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 you just don't get any kind of incentive to do the work. Yeah, I mean, it's, yeah. It's, I hear you. Yeah. So, you gotta, I, well, you know, I mean, the only advice I can give you from you know an old timer who's a you know an artist and a dreamer is don't give up your dream, whatever you do. And I, I preach this when I'm on stage with the band and I hold up our vinyl album and I go, guys, I, we wanted to do this 50 fucking years ago. We wanted to have a vinyl album and now we're like in our 60s and we finally are doing the dream. Yeah. Don't give up your dream. It might not be in your timeline the way you want to do it. You know, God's a humorist. You know, he'll watch you keep, you know, zigzagging down the road, but eventually you'll get there if you don't give it up. And I said, it's, it's hard. You know, a lot of you got to, you know, you got to get regular jobs. You, you know, have a family, you got to raise kids, but I've seen so many people end up finally doing what they want. And even actors, I've worked with a lot of older actors that didn't really get going until they were in their late fifties. Some of them, you know, and grandparents and they got back into it. And suddenly, you know, they're in Jim Carrey movies and they're, you know, got this incredible career. And we all say the same thing. It's maybe even sweeter that you've paid so many debts to get there than it would have been had it happened when you were a teenager. But, you know, I see people, too, come into this town, L.A., all ready to make it. And, it, you know, they get a job and it's like, see, I knew it was easy. And then the next one doesn't come, you know, and then, then it's like, what the fuck? What did I do? You didn't do anything right place, right time, that happened. But you've got to just, you know, kind of keep keep steady on it. Keep, you know, do whatever other job you got to do to pay the bills and, you know, eat. But just keep finding some way to keep hooking up with people. And all it takes is one of those guys to make it. And it's like, yeah, hey, you want to come with me? Yeah, come on. You know, because it's a collaborative art form. And one way or the other, either you're doing theater as an actor or you're doing, you know, hopefully decent student films that go into festivals and shit, and then you got something for your reel. I mean, there's so many avenues that you can, you know, kind of do as you're, you know, waiting to get, quote, discovered, you know, to do like mainstream stuff. Um, but any place where the industry starts to pick up um, that's not in Hollywood, good place to go because they're going to be looking for actors, going to be looking for filmmakers, they're going to be looking for material, you know, because it's like, gee, we got all these people that want to do it and, you know, we're our, our own little camp here. Like, you know, George Romero was, mm-hmm. you know, doing in, in, in uh, Philadelphia. I mean, and, and Robert Rodriguez in Texas. And, you know, you kind of create your own business 
where you are or where you go to. Yeah. I mean, that's what Matt and I are constantly working on. I mean, we got the podcast now. We are still doing films, doing shorts. And it's, I mean, the thing is, and probably uh, the best thing so far in my life was meeting up with him. So, so, uh, keep, uh, uh, we we keep our, ourselves going at this point. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. yeah. yeah so when I get depressed, I call him up and he tells me to keep going. Keep going. <laughs> keep fighting. But, but I, I keep on trying, man, but it's sometimes, sometimes it's it's hard, man. <laughs> I know. Yeah. The timeline thing is a new thing I've had to come to grips with, I think. And it's like, you know, as, as you're doing things, if you come into a uh, – a snag that you get caught up on. You're like, so in the moment it, that you're in the now that you go, Oh, this is fucking the end of everything. This is so crucial. But like, you really got to look at the big picture, a lifetime, a body of work. You know, if something ain't working for you this year, maybe it's the wrong time. And maybe in two years later, it could be the biggest thing in the world. So you can't let it drag you down. You just exactly. got to kind of roll with the punches. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, that's the thing. I mean, we all are insecure. I, I, there isn't a morning I don't wake up going, all right, what, what's going to go down today? I don't know. You know, and I start thinking about all the things I didn't get done yesterday or yeah. what script I, you know, I still haven't gotten back to, you know, six months later or whatever, you know, and I had a huge come down over the summer where, um, I'd written a essentially a 30 minute short, uh, piece, um, about racism that was a horror based thing, um, that uh, Dan Merrick, who created Blair Witch, he had created this this new series uh, called The Black Veil, and it was all Southern Gothic, you know, stories. So he's been hiring, you know, different writer directors to make these things. The budgets are like next to nothing, yeah. but certainly better than if you're doing like fan funded films. You know, they actually have investors. So you know, my thing becomes a go. I go down to uh, Tampa, Florida. I cast, I've got my cast, I've got a crew. We're 48 hours from shooting. I've gone with the DP who's, you know, the, the age of my son, you know, who was DPing it, but smart, wonderful guy, creative. Um, and suddenly, you know, of course, we're dealing with all the COVID shit and because the producer didn't want to spend the $6,000 to get everybody properly COVID tested. Um, but we got kind of through all that. And then the plantation that we were shooting at found out that I had an anti-racist theme in there that what we were doing, although it was called the hanging tree, it wasn't the way they were thinking of the hanging tree. (laughs) This, this was like, no, you know, we're putting a white racist chick from New York on that tree at the end of the thing, you know, over the situation of her just not changing her heart or her mind. And it was sort of like what she grew up with, you know, father, grandfather who were, totally about, no, we don't hire those people, you know? And so it really was like a morality fable kind of thing, but this guy shut us down. I mean, we couldn't, despite having a contract and all the rest of that, sue me. Mm. So, you know, I was on a plane, you know, that following Monday going, you know, I can't believe I'm going home with no film. And I was so stoked to do this because it'd been a while since I wrote and directed something. And the very theme of what I was doing which, you know, was meaningful was the, the reason that these folks said no. So, you know, it, it just, so it's strange, but having given up, you know, we're trying to find another plantation or a man, manor house in Georgia or Mississippi or whatever. And I just hope the money doesn't suddenly 
move on to, no, we're going to, you know, open up an olive uh, garden and, you know, <laughs> that's where everybody's yeah. going. So, I mean, it, it always, things like this happen and you it's like, okay, that one didn't quite work. You know, keep, keep working on other things. Yeah. Um, reputation is only as good as like the movie you made that's hot right now. And then it's like, what else you got? Everything else. It's like, you know, they're, they're looking for you guys. I mean, they're looking for somebody that's fresh and new has made no real mistakes. You know, you can look yeah. at my body and work and go, well, that worked and that worked, but what about that one? You know, that didn't really go. And so, you know, that's, that's the other thing you run up against, you know, the, the yeah. luck they want to believe that, you know, this person's lucky, they're magic. They come on my show. It'll be great. I got the caterer that did the Titanic, you know, and that was a big movie. Yeah. You know, well, you find out the guy was fired after two days, but it doesn't matter. It's on his resume. Caterer of the Titanic. He gets the job. You know, I mean, it's that maddening, you know, how yeah, people yeah. get on things. Yeah. Yeah. The politics are nuts and crazy sometimes. Yeah. You know what I mean? So you, you, you just have to keep being creative, keep putting it out there, put it on YouTube, put it on, obviously, you know, any any way that any social media thing, you can get it to somebody. And so... Hopefully somebody sees it and goes, you know, hey, I'm doing something, you know, would you like to, you know, jump aboard? You know, there's not a lot of money, but there's some and, you know, you, you go for it. Hope, hope it succeeds in some, on some level. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's how our community was run over in Massachusetts for a long time, where it was just like you worked for credits in the hopes that the film you were working on was going to get somewhere. You know what I mean? Yeah, I know. That's all you can do. Yeah. I had a question about uh, Van Dyke and Company. Sure. How did you get involved with that? It's more, it's comedic, comedic, you know, variety show type deal. Yeah, well, that's really what I was going towards when I, when I said I, you know, I went to Paris and I, I started studying mine for the intention of, you know, being able to do these things on stage that Mick Jagger didn't do. Yeah. And, you know, and I was sort of pre-Alice Cooper in a lot of ways in terms of like visuals I wanted to do and stuff. And the irony of that is that, you know, when I was, when I had my band in the mid sixties, there was a group that we used to play with called the Naz. And, uh, you know, the lead singer was a guy named Vincent from Texas. And I'd see him backstage. I'd see him at Frank Zappa's house. We'd talk and stuff. Vincent became Alice Cooper. Oh. That was the last time I saw him was like 1966. Despite that he's like, you know, the song of Jason Lives and that, yes, I put some of his songs in the, the movie and stuff. We have still not hooked up in 35 years. Um, but the irony is that, you know, that was exactly the kind of way I was thinking as a rock and roll to go with that whole kind of gothic horror thing. But when I got back and, and started to perform, I realized you know, I can do comedy. And I guess that was from the Chaplin influences that mm -hmm. I saw as a kid. So I started performing, you know, uh, in theaters, on street corners, whatever I made in the hat is how I ate that night. So I was either going to be McDonald's or Sizzler, you know, depending on the money. And, you know, you know, it was a shitty apartment, no car. And I didn't have a car until I guess I was 23 or 24. So it was really that kind of vagabond artist life. But eventually I formed a comedy group called the L.A. Mind Company. We were performing at a theater. Dick Van Dyke, who loves physical comedy, just happened to come and see us. He loved us. He said, I've got a new variety show. would love to have you guys on, you know, and I'll be like the sixth 
member of the LA Mine Company. We thought, oh, that's really funny. Yeah, it's great. And he meant it, you know? And so he said, you know, who writes and directs your material? And I said, I do. And he goes, great. Can you write something for me and Lucille Ball or Freddie Prince or Tommy Smothers or whatever? So now I guess what I was like, 26, you know, I'm directing these legends, you know, Carol Burnett, you know, in comedy and Dick and I got an Emmy nomination you know, from that. And that made me go, well, maybe I don't want to just perform. Maybe I want to write and direct, but I love horror. So I kind of shifted away from the comedy to do horror. But as you know, with Jason lives awful lot of comedy in there because yeah, yeah. I couldn't completely let it go. You know? Yeah. So damn. And Dick was, and still is at 85 fucking amazing. You know, I saw him a couple of years ago at the magic castle yeah. and he he is like the most positive, uh, you know, he, he's just one of those people that you go, thank God he walked the planet because he's had such a good influence on oh, yeah. know, making people smile. Yeah, true legend, you know what I mean? Yeah, I, yeah, I know really Andy, Co- Andy Kaufman was also a part of that show. Any stories, yes. I mean, you know, any stories about Andy Kaufman, I mean, it don't get no better than Andy Kaufman, man. I know. And we would all hang out together, like in the parking lot after the day. And uh, and there was one point where he goes, you know, I have this idea of like creating this like lounge singer. Um, I know I'm going to call him Tony Clifton and, but nobody's going to know it's me, you know, and he's going to be like the rudest. In fact, he's going to be so hated. He's going to have to perform in a glass cage. So (laughs) people are like trying to shoot him and stuff, you know, and we're going, okay, Andy. Yeah. Well, of course, <laughs> he didn't do the glass cage, but he, you know, created that persona in such a way that, you know, he had his own social security card that said yeah. Tony Clifton. And when he died, none of us believed it. We thought this is another one of his wrestling, becoming Christian, all those things that he would do <laughs> to say <laughs> that how he had changed. Um, and he dated one of the girls in my group, in my comedy group. And she said every time he showed up, to pick her up he was a completely different character and he stayed that way all night didn't break so yeah he was he was one in a million that's for yeah. sure he's like i guess you could equate him to maybe peter sellers maybe maybe yeah. you know what i mean but yeah peter sellers would only, only do it for the movie see that andy loved to fuck with people in life you know yeah. that was his- <laughs> That's cool that you got to meet almost like the real Andy if there was a real Andy, you know what I mean? Like the behind the scenes yeah. Andy. Yeah, he I mean he was very driven, very sweet, you know, very insecure. Um, and somehow he could channel this, you know, fearless attitude about no matter what, he wasn't gonna break character and he didn't care if it really pissed off people. Um, still don't know about the whole, you know, Freddie Blassie thing and the uh, and the guy that you know actually you know did the pile driver on him. Yeah, 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 yeah. I think that was a work too. I think they've t- I've heard him talk about that later, but yeah, yeah, he was yeah because he was a. Uh, we just lost Norm McDonald recently. Rest in peace. And Norm Mc's kind of one of those weird like those characters. Yeah. He was very Kaufman esque. You know what I mean? We had, yeah, he was. You don't really know where the character stops and the real person ends type deal. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, my daughter's doing a a, a show now with uh, Nathan, you know, Nathan for you. Have you seen that on, on Comedy Central? Yeah. 
Same, same sort of thing. He goes out there and completely cons normal people into what he's going to do for their business. Yeah, and yeah. It's, it's pretty, pretty damn funny. You know? uh, very, very interested. They're keeping it all very hush hush, you know, where they are, what they're doing, you know, to make sure it doesn't get blown. Um, but I guess he got quite a bit of um, notoriety from Comedy Central. Yeah, it's like the new age physical comedy is that kind mm. of messing with people type deal. Yeah. You know, so, you know, I always like to hear about like the pre come coming into big things. And with Friday the 13th, part six, arguably the best film in the franchise. You know what I mean? People will say like, a big fan. And, Thank um, you. you know, it was already an established franchise. And how'd you how'd you come into directing that and writing directing? Um. Well, I, you know, the 70s guys was just, you know, once Halloween took off and everybody realized, oh, shit, we can make, you know, a horror movie for no money, kill some girls, put a mask on somebody, whether it's a bag or a welder's mask, it didn't matter what it was, you know, they, they could get a deal and they could raise money in Europe and release it over there and, you know, they could clean up for well under a million dollars. So wherever I went with my, you know, like my one dark night idea, you know, the door would close um, and say, look, you know, if you could get some blood in it, you know, at least there you can, you know, kill, you know, with some, somebody that, you know, we see through the movie. Cause I didn't show you the villain until the very end of the piece and all the rest of it was kind of psychological horror and, and, you know, paranormal horror. Um, I couldn't get that thing, you know, off the ground, but if I wanted to do one of those, I, I could finally, you know, I got one dark night made and that was the thing that went to Paramount as an example of, you know, my directing and Frank Mancuso, they were like going crazy because they had put out obviously the final chapter with, you know, all expectations that this was going to be it. Um, but it made so much fucking money. Somebody said, you got to bring them back somehow. Yeah. So part five, as you know, wasn't Jason. And the movie ended with Tommy Jarvis with the mask. And the audience, the fans were like, boo, you know, no. So, you know, the, it was such a bad reaction that instead of waiting two years, like they normally would to release these things, they said, we got to get the next one out like right away. So they started looking, you know, for directors. I really had no interest in doing a slasher type movie. It wasn't kind of where my mind was at. I didn't think that was right in terms of just enjoying watching women getting cut up. I'd go and see these things, um, you know, on horror movies and things in downtown L.A. And the crowd would be just, yeah, get that bitch. Yeah, yeah. Cut off her titties. Yeah. You know, and I'm going, you know, this is just too much. I'm sorry. I don't want to be part of that. I want to scare people, but not, not enjoy like the torture porn kinds of stuff. But he, you know, he met with me. He said, you know, you've got a really interesting style with, you know, you think you could put that into like a Jason movie. And I go, well, what do you want exactly? And he goes, we need to bring him back from the dead. I don't care how you do it. You could do anything else you want. I mean, within means, because, you know, you're going to have a whole lot of trouble with a motion picture rating board if you get too you know, over the top with the gore. We've just gone through that with the last 
director and of course all the pornography you know because danny steinman came out of porno he said you know all that stuff just you know you're gonna have to go in there and you know understand you're gonna be running up against that i just said can i put comedy in it and he goes what do you mean i said i, I want the kids to have a sense of humor about the whole kind of that world a bit even the audience i kind of want to have a little fun with because this is the sixth one, you know, and there has been no other long-term franchise other than James Bond that has done that. So of course I put in the James Bond satire at the beginning to basically say, look, we're going to have fun with this. So Frank was like, yeah, totally aboard. I had such creative freedom. It was ridiculous. You know, only I think twice, you know, he came in and asked me to change something one was I'd written Jason's father in at the end of the movie. And he said, you know what? As much as I love the idea, as much as I love the scene, if we tell the audience, look, here's Jason's father, there's going to be people going, oh, no, now the next one's going to be about Jason and his dad. No, you know, so he said, I, I just, if you don't mind, take that out. And I go, okay, I understand that. And then the other was after we screened it the first time for just, you know, a party hardy crowd that were at Paramount that were so drunk, so stoned. It was like a roller coaster ride where I couldn't hear one word of dialogue. They were just hooting and hollering to the whole thing. And at the end of it, Frank goes, I, I think we should do three more kills. I got 13 kills. I, I thought that would be great. That'd be cool. And we need three more. And I go, well, who are we going to kill? And he goes, I don't know. You'll figure it out. So I thought, all right, well, I didn't kill the caretaker because he was supposed to have the scene with Jason's father at the end. I thought, okay, so I got to set up some way to kill him. And I had, a, I thought, a pretty decent kill for, for him with the drinking and then having Jason ram the, the whiskey bottle into his neck. And then it's like, hey, where am I going to get you know, two others? And, 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 and I've never been happy with this idea that, you know, they're out at night. He's proposing to her and he witnesses the murder of the caretaker and then they both get speared which to me was not a very inventive kill but it's like i got him his three kills and you know for whatever reason he felt you know happy about that so those are the two things everything else is is mine so i really love the fact that if you hate this blame me if you like it blame me (laughs) you know I, i wanted to take the you know the full responsibility and because they were in a place of kind of desperation with the, with the franchise, it's like, you know, let's just listen to the kid. You know, he may know something we don't. Yeah. And as you know, I mean, that resurrected him. And even though I never called him Zombie Jason, that's become sort of the, the, the you know, the mark there of the human Jason and then the zombie Jason. And, you know, on we go um, and we'll see what, what the hell happens. I've written a sequel to mine, finally after 32 years, and I wrote it like three years ago, uh, that all takes place in the winter. Um, but until the lawsuit is truly settled, even though Victor Miller has the rights to the name and he can remake the original, he doesn't have Jason. So Sean Cunningham and him have to decide, well, if they want to do either of these things, you know, one wants to have Jason and the title and they're going to have to work that out financially. God knows when that'll happen. So. Yeah. You know, that's kind of where, where the thing lays. But, I, you know, for years, I was so badgered by, you know, you got to do another one. I go, I just don't have any good ideas. You know, I, I offered up, you know, Cheech and Chong, me, Jason. You know? <laughs> he said, no, go away. And um, I said, 
outside of that, you know, they wanted me to do Jason Beats Freddie back in 87 and New Line wouldn't allow Freddie. So, you know, that didn't happen, to, as you know, many years later. So then, uh, but now I felt like I came up with something that as a fan now of the, of the franchise, um, I think fans would really love um, how he comes back, who he's targeting, all females, you know, and Jason, he's the only male in the thing. And the kind of claustrophobic aspect that uh, the thing had, particularly John Carpenter's the thing yeah. where you're out in this massive sh- snowstorm and it's him, you know, and, and these six chicks yeah. uh, and a nun that's you know, running this. <laughs> Freddie's it's a, yeah. It's a, a you know, it, it's a retreat. It's a spiritual, it's a spiritual retreat. If you know, if you know Catholic, um, you know, th- that they're taking these sinners who, uh, it, you know, to try to get them to, you know, kind of redeem themselves. Um, and they've got this Irish kick-ass nun who's basically the villain for the first 20 minutes of the film until, you know, Jason steps in. But, you know, I wanted to take that kind of Catholic background and spin it a bit and have these badass girls up against, you know, our boy. And uh, I just thought it could be an you know, interesting, you know, interesting thing to watch <laughs> play out. I, I definitely like the winter vibe. Winter is an untapped horror uh, landscape, you know what I mean? You know, like Adam yeah. Green's Frozen, which I think might be Adam Green's masterpiece. You know, that really, I mean, there, there's real terror in that film, you know what I mean? Yeah. For sure. Yeah, that's true. It's hard to do, though. I mean, um, ironically, uh, uh, Vincent, who did uh, Never Hike Alone and Never Hike Alone in the Snow, he was writing his winter idea exactly the same time I was writing mine. Neither one of us were aware of it until we kind of got together one day. And no, I guess he heard when I announced I was doing, he goes, well, you know, I've got one that I'm, you know, halfway funded on. And I go, you do? So I thought, oh, fuck, you know, there goes that idea. But when I saw his, I mean, he could not shoot in like heavy, heavy snow. And that's the problem with you try to do it real. The snow's there one day and gone the next. So for me, it's like I'm going to have to make a lot of artificial stage things and then shoot all the real snow stuff in a very condensed period of time and of course at night it's going to be you know sub zero temperatures to stick a crew in so you you know you really got to be mindful that you don't give people hypothermia in the (laughs) the art of trying to make a movie so it mine becomes much more expensive to do because of that so i can't do it as a fan film it's just way too out of that league of, of what's affordable so i have to wait out you know this this um you know, the, the, this rights thing, if uh, hopefully it gets resolved in my lifetime. You know? Oh, yeah. It's Child's Play just had a big rights thing they went through, too, with, which was a nightmare, yeah. you know. Yeah. They're so profitable. These franchises are so profitable. Like, the Hollywood system looks at what what do we have that can continuously make us money forever? And it's these things, you know. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's, and if they cover their nut, I mean, be honest, guys. I mean, that's exactly what, you know, Friday the 13th was for Paramount. They did not want to acknowledge they were making it. We had to hide under titles of David Bowie albums. You know, we were a lad insane. <laughs> we were shooting it. Um, and, you know, they, they didn't talk about it until it's like they, as if they just picked up the film, you know, but they certainly were behind it. And that's the money they used to make their better films, yeah. you know, 
off of these things that they knew, you know, Cheech and Chong and all those kinds of franchise type movies, you know, and it's a still the same way, you know, the Marvel and DC, all that stuff, but, you know, huge copyright stuff that's going on with those things too now. Yeah. And, you know, it takes something like Scarlet who just got pissed off about, Hey, I didn't get a theater release. You know, she got, I'm, they're not saying, but the rumors are somewhere around $40 million over what she felt she deserved, you know, and that she, she got boned, but whose fault was it? COVID. I mean, shit. Right. Some people, they say you can't use COVID for an excuse. Give me my money. Give me my money. Yeah. I want my money now. (laughs) It's like, I want my, what's that? What's that insurance commercial? uh, I want my money now. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, It's my money and I need it now. Yeah, <laughs> I, I think I think Friday the 13th Part 6 is one of the most beloved films. It's very dark. Um, it has the rock and roll theme, very rock and roll to it, you know, sound yeah. as well as the whole vibe of it, the look of it and everything, which I, I'm sure was very, you know, that was supposed to be that way. Yeah, um, yeah, definitely. And the children aspect is something I always like bringing up because like the fact that kids are even in it. Like he never kills a kid, but when you see, you see him close to the cabin or whatever, you get the vibe that he could kill a kid, and that does yeah. create a vibe within you, which makes him even more dangerous. You know what I mean? Yeah, and you know what else happened that was kind of a surprise is by having the kids in there over the years, as it obviously was released on you know VHS and and DVDs, and and of course showing on TV, and you know a young child audience was seeing it. And they were identifying with the, oh, my God, that could be me in there, too. Yeah. So it, it kind of pulled in a younger audience. Uh, and the same thing happened with One Dark Night. I never intended that to be a PG movie. I just wanted to have something that had a lot of gore and maggots and pus and, you know, and all this stuff. But they gave me a PG. And as a result, parents, grandparents were taking their kids to see this thing in the theaters and it completely traumatized them. Um, and, you know, I meet them years later and you go, you fucked me up so bad, but you know what? I'm a filmmaker now, so I appreciate it. Yeah. You know, it's like, you know, you just, you never know. You never know what, what where your sh- stuff's going to go and ha- you know, what's going to happen in the long run. It's the amazing miracle of movies. Yeah. Influence. I mean, just like music. You know, it can, it, it, it's created and, you know, a hundred people could listen to it and feel a hundred different things, you know what I mean? Or watch it and feel a yeah. hundred different things. It's just, it's art. It's like, you know, it's emotion, you know, it's just raw emotion, like bottled up, so to speak. Exactly. Yeah. And that's the thing that all of us strive to try to do, which is create stuff that somehow has universal appeal. You know, it's like somebody in Russia understands that emotion, understands that situation the same way, you know, somebody in Massachusetts would or somebody yeah. in South America. There's, you know, male-female things. There's mistrust things. There's life and death. There's, you know, all these things that, you know, you you even without the words, you see kind of what the dynamics are and you start to put it together and identify with it. And when that happens, you know, people tell other people, oh, you got to see this. It really, you know, really gets to you. Yeah, and whether it's horror or comedy or tragedy or whatever, it, it's still those same basic things that we want, which is emotion. Yeah. Speaking of emotion, whenever I uh, whenever I see Date with an Angel, mm-hmm. I feel heavy emotion because 
the girl of my dreams, Phoebe Cates, that I could never have, that I could never <laughs> have is in that film. Um, so I get very emotional. Mm. Uh, another great film. I know Alex is a gigantic fan of the film. Yeah. Mm. You know what I mean? Well, I mean, yeah. it's it's funny with you talking about the, uh, the uh, comedy aspects because, I mean, m- most of the stuff that I've seen of yours, of course, has always been horror, horror-related. And it and date with uh, with an angel is of course all you know romantic comedy esque you know a lot of physical comedy in that and uh, and it really shows you know your, uh, the your comic style and your comic timing which I really appreciate I thought it was really good thanks yeah that's where my heart was in fact when I was trying to get that movie made and and nobody could believe that you could make a movie about an angel or a female fantasy figure like that because there was no ET, you know, there was no splash, there was no mannequin, any of those things had not happened. So I took that thing around and around and around, but I had this vision because again, growing up Catholic, there was always these icons of angels. And there was one in particular that was in my room of two little kids going across a broken bridge and this angel above them sort of there to guide them. And that stuck in my head um, as, a, as a thing. And then a f- person that I knew um, at, at 28 died of a, of a brain tumor. And he only had headaches for like I don't know, maybe six months or something. That's sort of like a warning something was going on, but he just kept taking aspirin and stuff. And, and then when he, when he passed on, I thought, God, you know, he was such a wonderful person. You know, why did he get taken? And then suddenly the, the angel idea came into it. And it's like, what if God sent her down to take him? So it would be like at least a great way to go. Yeah. But she breaks her wing. And now he's taking care of her, not realizing he's nursing his angel of death, you know, to go. So, you know, that concept to me, it's like, okay, this is the movie I want to be remembered by. This is the, you know, so I I was just really passionate to get it done. But, you know, One Dark Night came along, obviously Friday the 13th. And then Dino De Laurentiis wanted me to do a Stephen King movie. Um, as the next thing. And I said, no, I want to do date with an angel. Cause that's, that's who I am. That, that Jim character is me. Those three guys are my three friends from my teenage days, everything. There's so much that's personal. That's in that movie. Um, and kicking and screaming, he said, all right, all right, all right. you know, but you got to do Stephen the King and next, you know, which was sometimes <laughs> they come back. Um, yeah. so yeah, it, it, it meant a lot to me, but then it went through like nine screenings, <laughs> with preview audiences and Dino was freaking because all the movies in his um, library of stuff that he had just made. And I'm talking about William Friedkin, Bruce Beresford, Peter Bogdanovich, you know, David Lynch um, with blue velvet, you know, which he was at the time considered a failure to, to Dino. And then the only movie that he really hated and wouldn't release was the only thing that took off after he, caved and dropped the company and, you know, people picked up those movies was Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. You know, that, you know, again, who knew? But Dave with an Angel sort of was kind of thrown out on the screens and taken off the next week and, you know, because he had no money for promotion or whatever. And it sort of became this, you know, forgotten little 80s romantic comedy. 
But as the years have worn on, there's a lot of people that have discovered it, you know, on TV, on DVD. And I just recently did a, a commentary uh, to the to the new version uh, or the version with some, you know, special features and stuff. And, you know, I found myself talking a lot about the music choices that I made for the thing, as well as obviously Phoebe was incredible to work with, as was, you know, Emmanuel Bayard and even you know, uh, Michael Knight, but the, the most humorous thing is when I wrote this and we started casting the first guy to come in who I really wanted, cause I saw him on a TV show and I saw him, you know, like in a, a you know, a low budget comedy horror thing was Jim Carrey nice. and nice. Jim wanted to do it in the worst way. He kept calling me, you know, have you heard that from Dino, but you know, and Dino, went to me, you know what, he's a good, he's a funny kid, but he's not a good looking kid. You got, we got to get a good looking kid, you know, which is why I like Michael Knight. But, you know, when I had to call and tell Jim that, he was so upset. He goes, you know, look, Tom, I'll do anything. You know, I'll suck his dick. I'll do anything. I got, I, do. <laughs> I said, Jim, it's not going to work. You know, he's got a beautiful blonde, you know, wife. He doesn't need you sucking. But, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, what a huge mistake that was, you know, because yeah. two years later, the man's making $20 million a movie. I know. But yeah, it, it's still, to me, a very special film um, because there is so much personal in there. And it kind of, you know, it was one of those ones that certain people kind of either hate it because it's just like, it's oh, my God, it's so sugary. Or they love the fact that it has a lot of the Frank Capra aspects yes. to it that, he was my mentor and he was the one through the whole process that I would send the script to and he would give me notes and he gave us a quote for the movie that Dino wouldn't use because he said, who knows who Frank Capra is? I said, if I made a Western and John Ford liked it, wouldn't you put that? Nah, I wouldn't put the John Ford. No, no kids know John Ford. So, um, you know, but that relationship with, with Frank was everything, you know, to, and that, that kind of was my tribute to him and his influences. Yeah. You know, music plays such an important part in your films. I recently heard an interview with Tarantino talked about how when he goes to write a new movie, the first thing he does is he goes into a record store room in his house and he picks out the records to songs he thinks would fit. And if he can't figure out the soundtrack, he won't write the movie. Now, do you have anything that you do, you know, is it from the get-go or do you kind of in post-production figure out what you want to put in? It's it's usually a post thing because... As time has gone on, I mean, I didn't know what the music exactly was going to be for the, you know, the first uh, few movies, except Date with an Angel. The composer, Randy Kerber, and I were, um, he was, you know, he he did all the music for my comedy group. And he recorded on Synthesizer uh, the main theme uh, four years before we made the movie. So when I would be going you know, any place I would be listening to that main theme. So that really was in my head through the whole process of trying to get that movie made. That was the only one. Everything else was sort of like, let's see when we put it together, you know, what's what's the soul here? What's the best way to kind of, con- you know, convey the scene? And Date with an Angel, all that music was not supposed to be there. That was supposed to be an orchestral score with a little bit of rock and roll here and there. But those were the days when it was like, it had to be like a music video, you know, and wall to wall 
songs from the yeah. period. And it, it completely kind of took it out of the romantic fantasy and made it more, you know, romantic comedy aspect to the, and I don't regret because there's so many great songs in there. And the fact that Stevie Winwood gave us, you know, uh, finer things for like the same amount of money that we got, uh, um, Angel Baby and stuff was amazing. Yeah. So, and, and there just was just some really cool, I mean, very 80s kinds of sound music. So from that standpoint, I sort of look back and go, well, you know, I, I kind of like that, that it, it has its own sort of album, you know, to it. Yeah. yeah. Well, sometimes they come back. Now, originally I heard that that was supposed to be uh, a part of Cat's Eye, the anthology film, but it was a little too long or something like that. Was that the yeah. story behind that? I think so. Yeah. I mean, the script was, you know, handed to me, you know, as I said, after date as the next thing, you know, wanted to do. And he wanted it to be a, he got money from CBS. And of course they were doing all these Stephen King movies on ABC and CBS wanted to have, you know, a Stephen King movie. And then Dino wanted to have a widescreen cinemascope Stephen King horror movie for Europe. So when I was shooting it, I had to kind of look at the monitor and frame for widescreen and also frame for television box, which is, you know, not what I wanted to be doing, but I had to do it because it had to go for both formats. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it, the, the script, the, the script with the credited writers, you know, it, it didn't really work. It didn't have all the humanity and stuff. And then um, the writer, Tim Kring, Kring, K-R-I-N-G, who I think went on to do a, a, a series for NBC and I can't remember the name of it, but he and I got into a room and started talking about what it needed to be. And so he did a, you know, a total rewrite to my, you know, specifications and things that, you know, he thought would be cool. And that's pretty much why I think the movie works because it, it isn't just sort of the best move, you know, the best moments from Stephen King's past, like the, you know, the car from, you know, uh, Christine and Stand By Me influences. And I mean, there were so many other things that that's what Stephen King said when he saw it. He said, well, some of it's the original story, but there's a lot of best of King in there. Um, but that was the kind of stuff that the writers, the original writers, uh, who did, I think, Jewel and Nile, um, you know, had on that script. And then we just, we ended up having so much that was so much deeper. And part of it was I was going through the most bizarre period of my entire life in, in that, in that little stretch um, in that, in the book that Joe Madri did on me, strange idea of entertainment, you know, there's a whole chapter just devoted to sometimes they come back because uh, me and Nick Garris were teamed together and we were creating two TV series. They came from outer space and she wolf of London trying to get writers and directors on, you know, these 20 episodes each I was, uh, you know, uh, directing a, a, a Disney Showtime uh, five-camera comedy thing called Stephen Banks Home Entertainment because I directed the play of Stephen King's thing. My father was dying. My daughter was about to be born. And I was trying to prep. Sometimes they come back that was going to shoot in Kansas. Literally, all of this stuff was happening all simultaneously. So in the middle of doing the, the comedy for uh, uh, Disney um, uh, uh, Disney Showtime, my father passed away. So 
on the day we were supposed to tape, I said, can we move it? Because I have to do my you know, father's funeral and the eulogy. Disney said, nope, no, you can't do it. And, you know, of course, I was thinking, what would my dad say to me? And I thought, no, he'd say, don't do it. Take the show. You know, do the show. And I'll, I'm, not, I'm not going anywhere. That's for you. So I made the compromise. I said, okay, I'm not going to be there for the rehearsal. You know, I'm going to go, you know, let my assistant camera or assistant director, you know, go through the whole rehearsal. He's got all my notes. I'm going to do the funeral, do the eulogy, be with my family, and then I'll come back and do the you know, thing that night. And then the next day I was on a plane to Kansas. <laughs> Never got a chance to mourn. Um, my daughter was born. We brought the baby with us, you know, there. It, it was, you know, so... I'm making this thing and everything that could go wrong was going wrong on that show from day one, when it snowed, when it wasn't supposed to, we were behind a day and it just, you know, Brooke Adams twisted her ankle. Extras were getting hurt. The transportation department quit, left all the equipment at the other last location. We went from a 28 day shoot to a 36 day shoot on a, Small little basic, you know, low budget horror movie slash TV movie. Yeah. But thank God, you know, every time the producer would hand me the phone and said, Dino wants to talk to you. I said, you know, Dino, I'm doing everything I can. You, you making me a goddamn good picture? Yes, sir. All right. Give me back the mic. Here. <laughs> that was it. You let me, let me do it. But somehow all these elements somehow got into the movie. And even though we had all these problems and stuff and it all came together and, Terry Paneri's score just was so heartfelt that, you know, the, the movie has become a real favorite to a lot of people that, you know, are just now kind of catching up with it. There was a really interesting article just came out, I think, a few days ago on it um, and, uh, you know, calling it sort of the like the last Stephen King movie on TV um, from that era and stuff. And, yeah, it's certainly not perfect. It certainly doesn't deliver a lot of stuff that people would expect, but for a TV movie budget and low budget little horror movie it was more character driven than it was effects or you know any of that but you know i i look at it as one of those things where god i don't know how we got through it and how we did it but you know it's sort of like the ugly steps child <laughs> you, know, you end up loving because of all the faults and it, yeah. and it worked for people it's funny, people do give, like, those Stephen King movies that were made for TV hard times, you know what I mean? I hate it, but, yeah. you, you know, we have you, we got Mick Garris, uh, Craig R. Baxley, I believe, uh, you know, yeah. he's done some really cool made-for-TV uh, Stephen King's movies as well. Um, yeah, it's a weird, it's a weird vibe. Now, Mick, yeah. I know you're close friends with Mick, right? You, you guys yeah. met back in the day when you were trying to find directors for those shows, you said? Yeah, well, we actually met... Um there was a screening of uh, uh, my film One Dark Night at uh, USC for the Academy of Science Fiction, Fantasy and Horror fans of which Mick was in the audience. And, you know, he had not directed yet. And he came up, you know, to me afterwards. And, you know, we were like brothers, like instantly, you know, same likes, same passions about stuff and became, you know, friends. And then Mick has been really instrumental in my career, you know, getting me directing job uh, on the others, the TV Spielberg series he was a part of. We wrote uh, an amazing stories that Robert Zemeckis, you know, yeah. directed, um, uh, you know, years ago. Um, we, we've just, you know, ended up collaborating a number of times. And of course, you know, he's like 
you know, the go-to Stephen King guy. And I turned down the stand um, because I just didn't see how they were going to make it with the allotted days. And I had just done this mini series called In a Child's Name. And that was hard enough. And this just seemed like, you know, as much as I thought this would be incredible, it, you know, I just went through such a ordeal. I thought, I, I don't want to fail on a Stephen King movie. Yeah. But, you know, Mick jumped in there and did a great job. And it's, you know, obviously it's become one of the, you know, the legendary of the, of the movies, you know, for, for the, of the Stephen King miniseries. Um, I felt for him doing The Shining, though. I thought, mm, boy, that no matter what yeah. Stephen King feels about it, the rest of us love that movie. <laughs> So that to me was a hard thing to jump in. But ironically, this Tuesday, Mick just, you know, texted me yesterday and said, you know, they, they invited me to one of the uh, awards for the Academy of Science Fiction and Fantasy. You know, you know, do you want to go? And I went, yeah, you know, we haven't hung out for a while. So I'm actually going to see him on Tuesday. Tell but yeah, so he's a yeah, great, great guy. And yeah, we've been, we've been close awful lot of years now. I always joke that we're taking the Mick, Mick approach now. Because Mick got kind of got his start as like a fan who interviewed horror f- filmmakers and stuff like that, and then he kind of got his foot in the door and was able to write, and then I think was able to then start directing them. So like, yeah, I, I joked that our podcasting, our podcasting will be our Mick Garris uh, route into <laughs> business. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Mick was a publicist. I mean, that was that was the job he got because he's got a very outgoing personality, and he, you know, he he. he Luckily, he was there at Universal when the thing was being done and, and Poltergeist, all those, you know, incredible 80s movies. Yeah. So he got to meet all these people. And and he, since he's likable, when he came to them later for stuff, they, yeah, Mick, sure. I'll and, you know, one thing led to another. You know, John Landis produced his uh, first, like, TV thing for Disney, I guess it was, Disney Channel. Um, and, it, you know, it, and then, of course, once... Spielberg took him under his wing, then it was, it was great. But the biggest thing he's done was create that, uh, uh, for us, Masters of Horror thing. Because I got to tell you, boys, you know, (laughs) go into one, sit at a table and, you know, there's John Carpenter, there's Rob Zombie, you know, there's Quentin Tarantino, there's, you know, all these filmmakers and Wes Craven and Toby Hooper. And you find out, no bullshit. These guys, these legendary guys are no different than the three of us. We're all lovers of this genre. We're all geeks at heart. We're all, you know, and we all admire each other's work. And it's like, you know, you should have done that thing. You know, in fact, there's a script that I just got that I kept thinking, you know, you would be the perfect, you know, and to have someone like Wes Craven turn to you and say, I wish I had your career. I went, what? He goes, you got to do all these different genres. As soon as I try to do a different genre, it fails, and I'm right back into doing horror again. I go, but you're fucking Wes Craven, name of the title. He goes, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter when you you know, when you want to do other things, and they won't let you because you know you've got to hit a particular success level, you know, which means financial. He says it's been a very frustrating career for me. So you know, I like bird watching. I like you know, things. You know, that's that's kind of more where my head's at now. Um, but, you know, and I never would have ever thought that. But, yeah, when I got into television, my rule was if I just did a thriller, next one's a romantic movie. If I just did a romantic movie, next one's going to be a Christmas movie. Next one's going to be, a, you know, a, some sort of, you know, alcoholism, mental illness, AIDS, you know, issues, whatever. Yeah. So 
I just kept jumping genres because I, I wanted the chance to try all these different things. And then I ended up at fucking Lifetime, you know, doing yeah. television for women, going, what the fuck am I doing here? I'm a, I'm a guy me on Friday the 13th. What, am, what the hell? But it was an opportunity to kind of do teenage material and female material. And there were no other female directors. Yeah. So and I could bring them in in, you know, eight, 17, 18 days. So they go, you know, you're our guy. But at a certain point, I just burnt out. I was like, I, you know, I just can't do this anymore. I got to cool it, you know, and, and, yeah. and get back to the sources of life and study and stuff. And then ironically, the rock and roll thing kicked in and I was like, holy shit, now I can go and do something I want to do 40 years ago, you know, that off I went. So yeah. now I'm trying to, you know, get back to what I used to do. And, you know, like anything else, you know, I'm, I'm now part of the, you know, back of the bus team, you know, yeah, you had your <laughs> shot back of the bus, brother. We got these young guys, you know, that, you know, that's time for their shot. And I understand that and I embrace it. And at the same time, it's like, you know, I, you know, you're going to have to put me in that grave before I'm going to stop. <laughs> you, know, right. you know, if you love what you do, you got to keep doing it. You know, yeah. You know, those TV movies, they're they're like real life horror. You know what I mean? Because I, I did. I do notice that is it's like there's a high level of drama, horrific drama, psychological, you know what I mean? To all of them all across the board. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, as an actor, Alex, you know, you, you would probably know, I mean, to go in there and play somebody who, you know, is a, either a serial killer or just murdered his wife and covered it up a true story. These people don't go to bed like, Oh shit, I did something bad. They sleep fine. I mean, that sociopath mentality. I talked to a number of these people on death row that did some really horrendous, you know, horrendous things. And they're like, yeah, probably shouldn't have done that. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's like normal. So, you know, as a director, you know, working with actors to get them into that, you know, that thing where they're not indicating anything that's evil or whatever, this person just needed to go. They were just not good for the planet. They weren't good for me. They're not good for me. And they rationalize this shit in a way that you go, holy shit. Or they pass lie detector tests. Mm. Did you do this? Nope. And the needle just stays there. And you go, holy shit, you know. <laughs> yeah. So a lot of that stuff, too, was my fascination with real monsters. You know, I did Stephen King. Yes. I did Freddy. I did Jason. You know, uh, you know, I almost did Bride of Chucky. I turned it down. Other mistake. But, you know, when I got into TV, it was global warming and AIDS and mental illness and alcoholism and yeah. prejudices and, you know, all these real monsters that I thought, you know, if I could shine any light on that you know, would be really, you know, interesting. Or the DC sniper, you know, doing that movie yeah. was like, shit, they just caught these guys six months ago. We hadn't even tried them. And I'm out there saying, you know, yep, these are the guys that did it. <laughs> and here's how they did it. And it was true, but yeah. you know, we took a lot of flack for that too. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's funny because I mean, when you do, uh, like films like, um, nightmare, uh, Halloween, and Friday the 13th, and you got these, you know, iconic horror uh, characters that are created. I think it's funny uh, that no matter how, how horrendous and all that, it, it, they, they kind of give you a little sense of actually uh, relaxation in the sense that you know that 
deep down, even in the moment you might believe it, deep down that there's not a Freddy, there's not a Jason, there's not a Michael. But when you start delving into the psychosis of real people, real monsters, and the fact that, like you said, that... Yeah, that... For real. Yeah, that, that, you know, your neighbor next door that, you know, you, you might have lunch with that seems, you know, normal could also, you know, it's like, yeah, you know, I, I just didn't like her. And, uh, so I just killed her. And, yeah. you know, then I, you know, went to sleep and uh, had a good nap. Yeah. I, it's, I mean, when, because I've played different characters, uh, and I played some darker characters that have <laughs> questionable motives and questionable ways of looking at the world. And the thing is that as an actor, you always have to find something. Um, we actually interviewed uh, Happy Anderson uh, near the beginning of the year. He played uh, Jerry Brudos in the Mindhunter uh, TV series on Netflix. Uh-huh. And we were talking and he made a comment that, you know, when you're playing these real life, you know, killers and all that, you have to, you know, find something about them. Uh, he says, of course, with him, uh, it was like, you know, the abuse that he suffered. He says what what Brutus ended up doing was horrific, and he was a horrific person. But when you're playing that person, you can't look at that person as as horrific or as a monster because they don't see themselves yeah, exactly. that, in that way. So... So he said that, uh, you know, I mean, that's how he was able to get into that character. And I I totally agree with him that, I mean, no matter what character you're playing, whether it's it's a serial killer or a make-believe monster like uh, Jason, that you have to find something in that character that you can relate to so you can play that character realistically because like you said i mean when you're dealing with these real life killers a lot of times they don't see what they did as wrong they saw what they did as either necessity necessity or just something i just did and i'm sad i'm caught but that's about it yeah 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 Yeah. it's like seeing a spider and it's like oh shit that spider could bite somebody i'm gonna kill it you know, and that the way they look at another person, it's like, yeah. you know what? They're just not, they're not a good person. And, you know, they hurt me and they're probably going to hurt other people. Let's just get rid of them. And yeah. uh, why did you do it? Because they weren't, they weren't worth living. I, I, I don't know. And then other times it is those passion kills that, you know, you come to learn that somebody's been planning this for a while because this person just, you know, hurt them so badly that I just read <laughs> something yesterday in England that some guy uh, who was a, like a nurse somewhere and this other woman that I guess he loved and didn't love him or something, he, you know, he went out and created a fat suit and made himself look black and a female. And, you know, he went, you know, like over to her house and threw acid in her face, completely disfiguring her. And, uh, it, and again, he got, he, by, Dressing up, she opened the door and did not expect that. And, you know, they had pictures, like, from, I guess, wherever this happened, that they had the surveillance cameras. 
and you see this guy in it, and he, it's not even a good fat suit, you know. <laughs> and I thought, God, you know, how far certain people will go to plan out something like that, and this woman's going to spend the rest of her life, you know, disfigured yeah. over this. And, and but, but obviously, he thought about it long enough that this was the right thing to do for what she did to him. And those people are the ones that really scare me. And when I had children, then it became like, God, I don't want somebody else's fucked up child, you know, to hurt my child, right. you know, just because they, you know, were not raised correctly. And, you know, there's so many times that kind of thing, you know, happens. It's tragic. It's, yeah, it's, uh, it's yeah. a gamble. Such a gamble. Well, Tommy, we've had you on here for a good chunk of time. We usually wrap up with one question. Sure. That question is, we have a lot of artists, filmmakers, musicians, comedians, everything across the board that listen and watch the show. We always like to ask people, you know, in time, when times get tough and you find yourself in a lull of work, is there anything you find yourself doing or thinking that helps you kind of get through maybe a tough time in the art forms? Yeah, that's a great question. And I kind of always come back to this one word that I I literally always share with the students that I work with. Um, and I said, you know, like, I can't teach you anything. You're going to learn by going out there and doing it. You can read all the books on filmmaking. I can tell you everything I know. You know, I could show you movies. I could show you clips on YouTube of all the best shots, whatever. But at the end of the day, it's going to be about, did I inspire you? When you get inspired to do anything, I mean, that's the hit. Uh, you know, when I was a uh, visual comedy and stuff as an act, you know, I'd, I'd go into Home Depot or someplace and walk around. And if I saw something that inspired me with an idea, oh, I know what I could do with that broom as a comic bit or whatever. And it's the same thing now going to movies and watching things that inspire me and make me go, I've got to keep going. I've got to do one of those kinds of things. You know, that's kind of, you know, what at least gets the juices going. Then I got to get down in front of the typewriter and, you know, the, the computer and start writing something. And hopefully if inspiration clicks, then it's like, you know, it's like you're getting somebody talking to you and you're just, you know, taking the dictation up. It's amazing um, when when those kinds of things occur. So for me, what I always tell people is keep looking for places, people, you know, other movies, something that makes you go, yeah, I want to do that. And I'll go through all this shit in my life that's going on. But, you know, I got to get to there, you know, and that's sort of that's the brass ring. You know, that's the the element of hope. You know, without hope, it, it, it's like, I, you know, I can do it. I'm just going to get rejected. You know, and I'm too old for this now, or I don't have enough breaks. Nobody's going to give me a break yet or whatever. All of that stuff is going to keep playing on you. It's just, we're human, you know, and we're going to keep finding the insecurity buttons. But it's not having like a false ego. It's more like, let me find something that somebody else has done or did, you know, at some point and go, I want to do that too, you know, and I love when directors like Scorsese and stuff says, yeah, I stole that from Howard Hawks and I stole that from Kubrick and it, you know, and, and the same thing is held students. If somebody says, oh, that's a Kubrick shot, you go, yeah, yes, it is. It sure. I love that. Didn't you love that shiny? Uh, yeah. Yeah. That's it. Just didn't, you know, that kind of inspired me. And I thought, 
you know, by putting in that move and this kind of thing, it would make it work. Oh, okay. Stop saying, no, no, I wouldn't steal. I wouldn't, no. Artists steal and artists yeah. need inspiration and all the greats, you can look at their work and you can see who their masters were, who were the people that inspired them and the good ones, you know, definitely share that with you, especially if you want to be inspired, you go say, oh, what got you going, you know, yeah. and that's what you look for. So that to me is the, is the bottom line, finding things, people, stuff, something you read, something you watch that inspire you, you know, just keep looking for inspiration. That's great advice. Where can, where can people find uh, hear some of your music? Um, well, the Sloss are on um, the Sloss the, the Sloss dot org. You know, the Sloss like the little furry animals with the three <laughs> big claws. Um, <laughs> and um, so there's you know stuff there. It's also pretty much on all the other stuff. I think we have a Sloss Pandora station that has our music and other garage music from that '60s period. And a lot of stuff on YouTube, uh, you know, either put, you know, Tom McLaughlin or uh, Tommy McLaughlin. And if you want to see my plans for the afterlife, um, there's there's one called uh, Legends Never Die Hollywood Forever. And it was something that was made for one of the supplemental uh, things in the the Friday the 13th. I can't remember which one. I think it was the Camp Crystal Lake one. But now it's on the Scream Factory big box on there, but if you just, you know, if you can't afford the big box, but you should, if you're a fan, um, you know, go on YouTube. And I talk about how I wrote Friday the 13th there at the Hollywood forever cemetery. And then how I discovered that this is not my third act. This is, I'm still in the second act. Once I die and go into that crypt, that becomes my third act. And I have, plans that I've been setting in motion, as I've said at the beginning of our conversation about the paranormal, things that I've been doing on a regular basis to set the stage for what I'm hoping will be a real breakthrough in paranormal experiments. And um, I won't be here to say if it's worked. (laughs) So all I can do is be inspired by the idea of it and hope that other people, you know, pick up on it. And I've had a lot of people contact me and said, yeah, I went by your crypt today and I saw the instructions on there and stuff. That's so cool. Um, and every, every year on my birthday, I gather a group of people and we just hang out there and we talk about what we're doing and what we want to do. Nothing about death, nothing yeah. negative, just life. And that's part of, the, to me, the big overall scheme of things, which is, you know, trying to just make things positive, of, you know, about things that are scary. And nothing's more scary to people than death. Yeah. I'm embracing it as, as it says on the crypt, you know, to die will be an awfully big adventure, Peter Pan. So it's that kind of a way I'm approaching it. And I just, I hope it works. You know, yeah. I hope somebody has, hears something, feels something, smells something, whatever. But as I said, I won't be around. I'll gone someplace, but yeah. the residual energy, the bio energy that we all have in us and every living thing has it to me that's the experiment can i have that retain itself there um so that like visiting your grandmother's house you go god i can still like feel her here you know or murder sites it's like something bad happened here and and certain people pick it up certain people are very sensitive other people are like i feel nothing man what are you talking about you know (laughs) 
you know, it, you have to have those two things, like, you know, positive and negative energy that have to come together and then something can manifest. Um, but as I said, I'm still looking for that formula. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we all are. Hell yeah. yeah. Uh, date, date with an angel getting a new release, a new upgraded release. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. That it, uh, when did it come out? I think like two months ago. Um, uh, yeah. I think it was like two months ago that they, they just released. They just did another One Dark Night one, too, that they made it look like a VHS box. Ah, I love on, that, yeah. On, on the Blu-ray, which was kind of cool. But, yeah, they, they keep, um, you know, because I, I certainly don't get any money on any of these things. They just <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, yeah. And, you know, <laughs> I, I still haven't got paid as a director on Friday the 13th because you know, there's no profit on that movie. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. But anyway, you know, it's like, you know, if you're doing it for the money, you know, there are much better ways to make money in this world. But if you do it for the love, what you love to do, then, you know, it's okay. And you're teaching as well. So if anybody's in the California area, they can, where can they uh, pop in to get some classes? Well, yeah, it's it's a university. So it's, yeah, Chapman University, Dodge College. So there's a, you know, pretty expensive you know, ticket, <laughs> get it in there. Be popping in. There'll be no popping in. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's not a popping. I mean, you know, if you get a hold of me and if I can s- slide you in some way so you can at least, you know, see a class or something, but yeah, that's, uh, you know, I, and I always wonder how people, you know, can afford that, but you know, Hey, I, I put away money my whole career so that both my kids could go to college. Cause I couldn't, I just yeah. audited classes, you know, at USC and UCLA stuck in the back and learned what I could. And, you know, and if you want to do it, you find ways of doing it. And there's so much stuff on the internet now that yeah. you can, you yeah. can learn, but nothing's better than actually doing it, teaming up with your buds and just, you know, let's just make one of these for fun this weekend, you know, yeah. and you yeah. learn stuff and you have fun and, you know, who knows what could happen with it. Exactly. Well, Tommy, this has been fantastic, man. We really appreciate you coming on the show. Sure. We'd love to have you back on. You ever want to come back on again to promote anything or we'll be promoting from afar the whole nine. We love you here. You know oh, what I mean? You. All right. Have and if anybody's in the East, you know, I'll be at Chiller uh, yes. at, in uh, New Jersey uh, on the uh, 30, what is that, 29th, 30th, and 31st. 31st, yeah. Um, which is uh, probably the closest. Uh, the other one's, you know, England and well, there's Germany. Um, I thought I had one other one someplace, but I'm blanking now where it is. But, you know, ask <laughs> at yeah, your local yeah. conventions because I love to meet you guys. I, I yeah. love going out and hearing, you know, how you first saw one of the movies or what it did for you, you know, as a filmmaker or even just as a fan. So, you know, if you can make it out to any of those conventions, I love meeting people. Hell yeah. Yeah, if you ever uh, uh, end up coming uh, up to like Salem Mass again or anything, anything up in this way, just hit us up. Uh, we'll meet up any anywhere that you're going to be, and uh, maybe we can do a ghost uh, walk together or something. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> that would be fun. Walk with the ghost. Well, thank you guys so much. It's really been a pleasure talking with you, and uh, you know, best of luck with everything. Hang in there. Don't give up. Don't give up those dreams, man. Thank you, sir. Thank you. You have a good Halloween over there and a great remainder of the weekend. Thank you. Take care. Take care. Bye-bye.